You are listening to Coffee with Curtis and I'm Robert Curtis. Welcome to the show. Coffee with Curtis is a weekly podcast where you will be able to tune into my conversations over coffee with business leaders sharing their journey and experiences to give you insights to impact your own business. So grab a coffee and enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Coffee with Curtis. I have Matt Jacobson with me this time. Matt is the CEO of Dusser Global Business School. He's a global ed tech entrepreneur. We actually met close to three years ago in Australia, came super close to working with each other, but it wasn't meant to be, but we stayed in touch and I've watched in awe as his company has grown and continued to deliver new and innovative ways to get people educated. Um, He's gonna talk about lots of interesting things about the future of education, why university is still relevant, how to use the system to produce outcomes-based learning, applied learning, and lots of other things. So tune in, get your coffee ready, and look forward to your feedback. Matt, welcome to the show. We're so delighted to have you on. It's been a thing that we've been trying to get into the diary for some time. And so I'm delighted to get you finally on Coffee with Curtis. We're going to talk all things education, business, and all sorts of other topics. So uh, delighted to have you here, Matt. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Robin. Really excited to be here. Excellent. Now we're going to dive straight into some big meaty topics. No warm up here, Matt. So get ready. it. For, for our listeners, before we do that, just give us a sense of uh, your career, who you are. Give us a little whirlwind tour of Matt Jacobson. Okay, well, I'll try to keep it relatively brief, but essentially I started my career in law. Um, and so I went and studied a law degree, worked for a couple of years in law. And the relevance of that to what I'm now doing in education or really the career that I've had in education is that when I did a law degree and as a student, you think you're working really hard and doing all the right things and getting into a good college and, you know, doing your exams and finally graduating. And yes, I'm ready to go and ready to start my career. And then you turn up to an office, like, you know, getting a graduate position, really excited. You turn up to an office and very quickly realize that you actually don't know a single thing about how to work in the real world. Um, So there's a lot of theory and a lot of academic underpinning with very, very little practical relevance to how you work, to how you work in the real world. And I thought, wow, is there something wrong with me? Is that just me? Um, And as I would, you know, chat to friends who are in all sorts of different industries, um, whether it's accountants, advertising, graphic design, the theme was always the same. Oh, I had to learn everything as soon as I went into the job and learn everything on the job. Um, And so there was this real disconnect between academic theory and practical employability skills. And so the whole, I guess, career that I've had over the last 20 plus years has been focused on how do you develop education that has the same academic underpinning because that's really important, but also has relevant practical skills that genuinely help people in their jobs, get promotions, advance in the careers that they're trying to advance in. So with that in mind, Matt, education as a system hasn't changed that much over the past you know thousand years if you go back I don't know eight nine hundred years to the days of Oxford and Cambridge the system other than a few new innovations is pretty similar so with that in mind in the world that we're living in today and with what you've just said about you know applied learning academic learning and bridging that gap are universities still relevant in their current form? 
That's a really, really great question. It's such an exciting topic and there's so much in there. And, you know, we could talk about that for hours, but I could give a couple of examples of how universities still follow a process that might not quite be relevant to the needs of today. So for example, you would know that you have a summer break that goes for about three months in university. In the real world, in the working world, well, we'd probably all love to have a three month break, but that doesn't really happen. Um, so it's like, why do universities do this? It's just kind of accepted. Oh, well, that's just how universities operate. That's what you do in a modern university. Well, actually the reason is because hundreds of years ago, as you referenced, universities still operating similarly to how they did hundreds of years ago. Hundreds of years ago, students had to go home for the summers to help on the farms with the harvesting of crops. Now, how many students do you think in London or in Singapore have to go home over the summers to harvest crops? Probably not so relevant today, but the universities are still in the same system. Um, another example that's probably more practical is the method of lecturing and the method of examination. So you teach information by having a person standing just basically talking for an hour and everyone's passively listening in a big room. Um, and then at the end of that process of months of receiving information, you put 500 people into a huge hall and have them all sitting a standardized um, examination paper. So is that the best learning methodology? Is that the best way to teach people? Is it the best way to learn problem solving and creativity and innovation? Absolutely not. Um, it's probably the worst way to do that. And is that me saying it? No, I'm not coming in as an outsider. I'm just saying that this is what all university research will show in terms of the effectiveness of lecturing or examinations. So why is it done in that way? Well, part of it is just inertia. So, you know, continuing to do what's being done for a very long time. Part of it actually does have very practical reasons. The only problem is they have nothing to do with good education. The practical reasons are simply about mass volume. So examinations, for example, came out through the industrial revolution in the UK when universities were requested by the British government to increase their enrolments by 300% in a very short space of time. The only way you could do that, the same way you would manufacture and produce any type of product, is to have an industrial process, a turnover process. So you don't have customization, innovation, um, looking at personalization. You put everyone in a big room and you get them to fill out the same piece of paper. That's a very, very efficient way to conduct education, not necessarily the best way to conduct education. So there's a lot of legacy things within universities that still continue on today. And that's why we love the partnerships with our university partners that we have around the world, because we still have the vision of collaborating to innovate and disrupt the way higher education works. But for a lot of universities, it's difficult to do it just purely internally because they've now become so huge. And as you become huge, it doesn't matter if you're a huge bank or a huge government department or a huge telecommunications company, it's very hard to adapt and be innovative and evolve when you have tens of thousands of staff and tens of thousands of customers, or in this case, students. So we try to come in as an ed tech innovator with a very large reputable infrastructure and together create something that really neither of us could do independently on our own. I think that's really interesting. And I, I guess I reference back to my university days and I recall my history professor saying about the British government, but I probably a, a 
references here in terms of education, the wheels of change are really slow. And it often takes that outside third party to come in and disrupt. But what I love about what you're doing with DeSur, and maybe you'll just reference a little bit about what happens with, with the infrastructure of DeSur and what your mission is, um, is that you're, you're, you're using the system that exists, um, but innovating from, from the inside ultimately. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And so there's a lot of um, people right on the fringes who talk about are universities relevant at all and should we even go to university and maybe we can just learn skills on the job. And I have, you know- Are they on the fringes? Sorry to interrupt Matt, but are they on the fringes? Because, you know, I've been to university, it served me well. I don't think anything I learned necessarily has helped me in my specific career but I, I value my education. But the truth is there's more people going through university than ever before. In America, there's a debt crisis that's attached to it. Is it a fringe, a fringe idea? Yes, so the, the fringe idea of not going to university. Yes, I think it is a fringe idea because as you said, there's more people going to university now than ever before. University enrollments are growing. So even though there is some discontent about how valuable is it, is it too expensive? People are still going to universities and are going in increasing numbers. It's still a little bit, I believe, of a fringe idea to say, don't go to university at all. So not to get too personal, but you know, um, for you, even though you know so much about the education industry and you would say, you know, there are definitely some challenges and what did you really learn that's applicable to your current job? You know, my guess is that probably most of your kids are still gonna end up going to university. And my kids will probably still end up going to university. So even though there are concerns, the infrastructure and the system by and large is still there and I believe will continue to be there. But there are some fringe comments, you know, and when I say fringe, I'm talking about really reputable people, um, not crackpots, very reputable people, but people that have this idea that maybe we can just throw the baby out with the bathwater. We just can toss out the whole segment of university. So an example of that would be Peter Thiel, very um, famous venture capitalist here in Silicon Valley, and obviously one of the founding investors in um, Facebook, etc. Um, and his view is very, very anti-universities and saying, I'll actually pay students to drop out of university and just do their startup. We fundamentally don't believe that. You can have some very, very um, uh, great successes, but it's not the common and not the mainstream. You know, so great successes like a Richard Branson and a Bill Gates, and sometimes people will point to them and say, well, they didn't go to university, so why does anyone need to go to university? Well, how many Bill Gates and Richard Bransons are there? They're kind of like one in 10 million. So for, for most of us, we still do need some structural education. You know, we need some infrastructure, some guidelines, some principles, some key learnings that will help us in various areas. Um, but my view is that the system needs to kind of be pulled a little bit more into the 21st century. So how do we improve the system? I'm not a believer in throw the system out because there are some deficiencies with the current university system. Affordability is a huge crisis in many countries, particularly in the US. So is the answer, well, let's close down universities? No, the answer is how do you make them more affordable? If universities are not engaging enough with industry to be current and relevant, throw out universities? No, how do you make the curriculum more current and more relevant? Because the infrastructure of universities can have a tremendous impact. And there are actually pockets where it does this very well medical schools are the kind of shining light of doing education in the right way. 
and they've been doing it for a very long time. And so anyone who knows anything about medical school would know that the last thing you would want to do is have a student sitting in lectures, being lectured to for five years, coming out with a piece of paper and then say, oh, you can go to the hospital and start, you know, <laughs> operating on someone. Like that would be ludicrous, right? No one would ever advocate that. So what do, what do medical schools do? They will have students throughout their entire degree integrated with a hospital and doing lectures at the university and practical rounds at a hospital and back and forth and back and forth. So you've got theory, practice, theory, practice. And so I sort of have thought about this and I've done some keynotes from Harvard and other places and, you know, mentioned this before and I'm sort of really scratching my head thinking, well, if that works really well to teach people practical skills in medicine and universities have been doing this for decades, why aren't they doing this in engineering and accounting and law and design and IT? And the only thing I can think of is the cost of failure. So what is the cost of failure in medical school? It's pretty high. The cost of failure is death. You don't get much worse than that. If you don't train someone properly in medical school, people are going to die if they're being treated medically in a hospital facility. For everything else, it's like, yeah, look, we'll let them figure it out on the job. Um, so the cost of failure is so high that there's no alternative in medical school. But that doesn't mean that the model that they have shouldn't be the same model for all other education. And that's essentially what DSER really does as a business school. We have that medical faculty practice of throughout your entire degree from day one till the day you graduate, you are learning information, you're learning theories, and you're applying projects and assessments on current real projects with businesses throughout the entire qualification. So it can be done right. It's just that unless the stakes are so high, you know, there can just be this inertia and, you know, a little bit of resting on laurels and, you know, we'll pass the buck maybe down to the employers to, to worry about um, relevant skills. That's not the way I think that universities should operate, given how much time it takes for students, how much money it costs, the difficulty of getting into a university. You really want to come out as a graduate of a university ready to hit, you know, the road running. That's what students should be expecting. Um, and that's what employers should be expecting when students come out of a university qualification. I, I concur with what you're saying. I guess you know, education is still the best gateway to more opportunities is perhaps how I'd put it. But um, the more you know through whatever mechanism that is, whatever learning that takes place in your self-development can only create more opportunities. I, I guess the... The element that maybe I, I have sympathy with, I was, I was reading Mike Rowe. I don't know if you know Mike Rowe. He's the uh, TV guy from the Discovery Channel. And, oh, right, uh, right. I can't remember what, what other show he's got at the moment, but he's, he's, a, he's, he's pushing that perhaps more fringe concept of, we've got so many jobs in America that don't require an academic degree. And there is huge unemployment uh, uh, that's coming out of the pandemic, particularly. Why are we not? re-diversifying and, and having skills and people trained in other ways that isn't around formal education as we've grown to know it but is that is that tiered system whether it's apprenticeships or on-job training um some of that can be served through what you're saying as well i guess yeah absolutely so there's a there's a lot in what you're saying which is really really relevant so you know how much of an impact does universities still have on career progression 
and what alternatives there are. So to quote one of your countrymen, um, Churchill, um, what did he say about democracy? Democracy is um, a system full of flaws, um, but it's the best game in town. So uh, I would say that education is similar to that. So is education perfect? And is it preparing people generally in traditional education for their careers, promotions, the workforce? Probably not, but it's the best game in town. Why? Because that's the system that we have in place. If you wanna get an entry level job at a bank as a bank teller, if you even wanna work in like a department store now, it's almost a standard process that the recruitment application says college degree required, university degree required. So you're kind of just cut out of the market almost automatically. You don't even get to the interview stage if you don't have a university degree. Um, that was the case for a few years. Now it's kind of elevated to the next level. What is the next level? People who want supervisor positions, management positions, the kind of default almost in a management advertisement on Indeed or Monster or whoever is MBA preferred. Now that doesn't mean it's a technical requirement, but as the language moves more into MBA preferred, well, if you're competing with 100 other candidates of which half of them have MBAs and half of them don't, if you're not in that pool of the 50% with an MBA, you're really just at the bottom of the list and you're probably not gonna get you know, even reviewed unless you've got something really, really outstanding. Now, is that fair? And is that the right system? Who knows? Probably not, but that is the system. So you can kind of complain and try to buck the system and say, this is unfair, but you know, you'll just be kind of arguing to the wall and it's not gonna get you very far, or you accept that that is the system that we're in and the pathway generally to jobs, promotion and career progression is some form of formal education qualifications. And that's why you see so many people on their LinkedIn profile, on their business card, email signature saying MBA, you know, at the end of their name, because it means something or masters or the letters of whatever qualifications that they've done. So I do generally believe that formal education will help. Our view is it'll help regardless. Now, the stats around, you know, how much more earnings you'll get from a bachelor's degree versus a high school diploma in any country in the world is going to have a significant increase, typically about 25, 30%. Same jump between a bachelor's degree to a master's level. So that's significant. Opening up new jobs, new promotions, income um, increases, et cetera. So just getting that piece of paper in and of itself will be a benefit. But our view is, okay, if you've got a choice of going to school A or school B, to get that piece of paper, you're going to be spending time regardless. You're going to be spending money regardless. Shouldn't you do one that also provides you with great skills that help you in your career versus just doing it so you can kind of tick it off and get the piece of paper? It's a lot of work for kind of just that superficial value of having the letters versus, you know, in our case, students are working on real current projects solving global impact challenges of the United Nations of LinkedIn, of airlines, of banks, of Make-A-Wish Foundation. So you're getting real skills and having real impact at the same time as you're still getting that formal publicly accredited university piece of paper. I guess what you're saying, and I, I really resonate with this, is that outcomes are the biggest driver around decisions. So by doing X, Y, or Z, if universities can realign over the decades ahead alongside 
the outcomes that their consumers, their students need to have in their life, particularly as we see a massive change generationally in the millennial and Generation Z in terms of their expectations of jobs. You know, our parents would have expected to probably been in a job for life. We probably expected to be in job for, you know, five, 10, 15 years and maybe have two or three careers. Today, as, as Reid Hoffman at LinkedIn says, you know, people do tours of duty, two, three years here, two or three years there, onto another thing. Um, and, and, and having the ability to have those transferable skills with the outcomes that you get from your education um, sounds like where you're heading in terms of that applied learning approach. Correct. So ultimately what it's about is not memorizing information to sit an exam because that information, you're most likely going to forget 80% of it within the next seven days. And even if you remembered it, how much use is that information and how quickly is it going to change? And there's just so many various um, reasons why that is just not very valuable as a use of time or a qualification. What's much, much better is having problems that you're learning the process of how to understand, tackle, collaborate, communicate, and solve challenges. Getting so that when you get a next challenge, which could be very different, the process of how you build a team, understand people's strengths and weaknesses, understand what is the fundamental outcome that you're looking for and how do you create the analytics, the research and the recommendations to solve problems. That is fundamentally what we're trying to do with our courses from bachelor's degrees through to MBAs. So the, the links to industry are really, really vital. And that's why the collaborations that we have, as I said, we can't do anything that we do alone. What we do is entirely dependent on our accrediting university partners. But we also believe we bring great value to our university partners. And we've got great people in our global faculty from former head of Boston Consulting Group to the um, former heads of many um, of the best, most prestigious universities in the world who will talk about, and you can go on our website and see this, um, talk about um, how universities need to collaborate with innovative ed tech organizations. And the reason for that is, it's not a criticism of universities, it's actually just a little bit of a misalignment on mission and purpose. That's fine. Universities generally have a different mission and purpose to you or me. And that is that they are very focused on something that is a really important community need. And that is research, R&D, publishing, journals, rankings, that's really the mindset of where most universities are thinking, this is where we want to go. If you speak to the executive, the president, the vice chancellor of most universities, what is your goal for the next five years? It's typically going to be something around rankings improvement, research improvement, um, not, oh, we want to have greater links with Coca-Cola and Ford Motor Company. It's not really their number one priority. Is it also part of their strategic thinking? Yes, it is but it's certainly not the priority. Whereas for us, that is the sole priority is industry integrated learning. So together we have this great combination where the university has the compliance, the quality assurance, the infrastructure, the learning methodology that they're focused on. We're focusing on the problem solving, the career integration, the career relevance, the practical applied projects. And together it really is that one plus one equals three you know, vision and philosophy that together we can do something bigger and better than what each of us could do alone.
That's so interesting. And I think it just goes to the heart of relevancy that um, being able to combine the two systems makes those universities that take that pathway highly relevant to the students that they're trying to attract. And I, 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 I guess the, the allure for universities in this type of relationship with an organization like yours at Dessert is, is they can have relevancy quickly. They can deliver outcomes and applied learning, but within the structure that they have already. Correct. So it depends what, you know, we mean when we say relevant. So universities have great relevance in many areas of community and community engagement. Um, like here, there's some fantastic work being done by universities. When I say here, here in the US where I'm based in California, um, great work being done by university on policies and integration of diversity and inclusion, which is a huge community issue. So universities are very relevant, you know, in uh, your home country of uh, the UK, obviously Oxford has played a pivotal role. I think they were the first to develop um, a vaccine for the current, you know, pandemic coronavirus. So universities are incredibly relevant in many areas. But in terms of that relevance that you're referring to about industry practical skills, um, and that's not all university areas. There's a lot of university areas that are around, you know, um, purely uh, academic or research fields. So if you're doing PhDs and very, very high level research, or even if you're doing a history degree, that's fine. People are interested in doing history degrees. There's not a need to have a connection to um, jobs and career. But the reality is, and this is where I think universities maybe don't necessarily have an eye on um, where the reality is in terms of student needs. The reality is that universities feel that most of the students and their mission and purpose is around academic and broad-based knowledge. We're teaching students to become learners and knowledgeable citizens for the future. Well, that's kind of an admirable goal, but all you need to do is actually ask your customers, in this case, students, what it is they want. And over 65% of students will say when they're asked, their goal of going to university is to get a job. So there is a little bit of a disconnect between what universities' mission and purpose is versus what their customers' mission and purpose is of being at the university. So for us, that industry connection is pivotal, especially in what are vocational qualifications. If you're doing a law degree, an accounting degree, or an IT degree, most people are not doing an IT degree because they're like, yeah, I just kind of had this fascination and I wanted to learn more about how IT works. No, most people are going to university doing an IT degree because they're planning on trying to get a job at Intel or Cisco or IBM or wherever. Changing tack a little bit, um, the delivery mechanism of education, we touched on that just, just before, hasn't dramatically changed over those centuries as we as we already referenced. One of the things that I love about what you're doing at Dessert is you are really innovating in terms of how learners learn, the method by which they consume that content and then demonstrate their understanding um, is, is really different within the Dessert model. And you know, the, the, the memory but, and learning by rote and the examination system is something that, um, you know, some people do very well at. I personally did do well at that, but I don't see why that's so relevant um, in a world where we're consuming content at unbelievable levels uh, like never before. Students want 
to, I, I guess, behaviorally want to learn in the ways that they're consuming other things in their lives. So we're, you know, we're on a podcast now, whether it's video and audio, whether it's um, other ways of learning that are not through traditional methods that also fit around their lives, particularly as people need to perhaps work whilst they're learning, um, they may have families already, there may be other demands on their time, how to learn is being dramatically shifted. And I think you're really at the cutting edge of that. Just talk to us more about what you're doing at Tessera with all of that. Yeah, such a great topic um, and so interesting in, in various ways. So universities in a campus environment are definitely um, environments that have not changed in a very, very long time. So when you and I went to university, what we did for undergraduate um, education, what we did made a lot of sense. You had to go to campus and you had to sit in lectures and you had to go to the library. Why? Because there was no other way to get information. Um, if you didn't go to the, like literally walk to a library and take out a book, there's no other way to actually get that content. And if you didn't sit You're in taking a me back, Matt. You're taking me back. Yeah, that, that's how we had to do it, right? So there was no choice. But what else were we doing at that time? Let's say you wanted to watch a movie. You would actually have to have, if you remember what these things are even called now, they were these VHS tapes, these big kind of black boxy things that used to stick into a machine. And that's how you used to watch a movie. Now that was happening at the same time. Now, if you like spoke to a friend and they said, oh, I'm going to watch a movie tonight. I'm just grabbing one of my VHS tapes and sticking it in a VHS. You'd be like, what? What are you talking about? Like, that's what people did in the 80s. Um, so that was the technology at the time. No one would do that now, right? Like you said, podcasts that we're on now, where you've got Netflix and all these different technologies. What's interesting, though, at the university, fundamentally, the campus is still doing the same thing as that VHS tape level technology. They've got the lecturer in the front. Um, they've got the physical libraries. And you're you know, being lectured to in a format that is not necessarily delivering modern required education. So what we're doing in an online environment, and you know, one of the, you know, there's nothing really positive about having a global pandemic, but one of the sort of outcomes that I think has spurred a lot of innovation and change is that universities have had to fundamentally really tackle this question of online education, digitization, being pulled into the modern world, which may have taken another 20 years if it was just at the pace that they chose to do it versus they were forced to move very quickly into the online environment. But online um, can be done very poorly like any type of technology or can be done very well. So poor use of online learning is saying, this is how we teach in a campus. Let's just try to mirror that online. So let's just put PDF documents accessible online instead of printing them out you know, in a hand-held um, piece of paper. Um, let's, instead of having people come into a physical lecture, let's just lecture through a Zoom call terrible even worse than a campus environment um, but you can do things with technology that you know you could never do um, in a traditional campus environment so um, I never talked about this before in any presentations about movie analogies so I don't know why I must have got some movies in the back of my the mind pandemic. but we're all we're all watching movies like crazy I'm just, yeah inundated uh with too many netflix things to watch um but going on with that sort of movie theme that i mentioned with vhs tapes um you know when movies first came out what were movies they were essentially a real live stage play just done on camera so you actually had a stage and you had actors on a stage and you were just recording it 
um, it's pretty terrible, right? Like, why wouldn't you just go see a live play? It's better than just watching a filming of a live play. Um, but now think about what you can do with CGI and all these incredible effects and animation, things that you could never do in a physical environment. So that's where learning needs to be. And what we do with online learning, um, to give one example, there's so, so many things that we do to create incredible engagement and motivation with students. But you will have students working on a real project of say LinkedIn or the UN. That is a live project. Those students will be from around the world working on their MBA with a live project of, say, the UN. You'll have a student in Johannesburg, a student in London, a student in New York, a student in San Francisco, a student in Sydney, all in a team working with the UN. They have to do that in a digital environment. They have to work through different time zones. They have to allocate different parts of the project to different students. Some are um, what we call learners, some are what we call managers, some are what we call leaders, depending on where they're at. So you've got various stages of students. You've got industry partners pulled into that project. You've got academic leads pulled into that project. And they're all collaborating to ultimately present to senior management of the organization recommendations for solving a real problem. That's unbelievable. Having people from all over the world in real time solving a real challenge. Um, it's kind of as far away as possible of having this walled off, you know, bubble environment where you're physically going in and sitting into this you know, campus environment, we're trying to break down barriers and break down walls um, as far as possible to be solving real challenges. I'm going to take you a little bit left field because I actually just came off of a separate podcast with um, the US Special Envoy for Combating Anti-Semitism, a guy called Ilan Carr, really interesting guy very interesting career. And one of the things that he spoke about was the scourge of anti-Semitism that actually lives on campuses in the US, or in Europe, um, and this being quite a serious problem. Um, what you're referencing there about real world application of, the, of, of, of their learning means that they get to interact with the real world. Campuses can sometimes be this bubble. And increasingly there are issues on campus around free speech, ideas, whatever it might be. It's something that's been, you know, very relevant over, say, the last decade or so. And I, I, I guess there's a sort of social impact element to what you're trying to achieve that actually my whole bubble of this campus, this cocoon, is not the real world. This is not how people live. This is not a true reflection of society necessarily. Um, and getting out there into business and industry just gives that other element that you don't get from a formal education when you're out in the field. Any thoughts? Yeah, a lot of thoughts. That's a really, really interesting point. I think firstly for campus and that comment around anti-Semitism, I think there are absolutely challenges of um, inclusion or racism um, in campuses as there are in all elements of society. Um, I think it's a real shame because generally speaking, universities are liberal institutions um, and there are fantastic positive examples, you know, going to say the Vietnam War and the, um, you know, how strongly students were um, protesting and voicing, you know, anti-war rhetoric, which was, you know, fantastic. Um, so I think there's a lot of positive 
um, uh, areas around inclusion and diversity on campuses. And there's many, many examples of great interaction and inclusion. Um, unfortunately, there are some, but I think it's more the minority than the majority, but I think there are some instances of discrimination, racism, sexism, harassment, various things that happen in universities, as I say, as they do in government departments and corporations and, and really anywhere. Um, so that is a real shame, but I think that universities can play a much, much more leading role of diversity and inclusion internally within campuses, but also more broadly for society at large, because more um, common for a university campus than in most of mainstream society is the diversity that you'll see in a university. You know, a lot of issues around gender equality, et cetera. Well, you go into a university campus and you will see pretty good gender equality in practice. Loads of presidents and vice chancellors of universities around the world led by incredible women, senior executives in universities, teachers in universities, students that have close to 50-50, you know, gender equality. In fact, many programs actually have more um, women in them than men. Um, you go onto a campus and you'll see people from, you know, every type of demographic in the world and religion. And so that's fantastic. But universities could do better. Absolutely agree. I think our only, um, I guess, element of that as a social enterprise, which we are, because we have a lot of, um, you know, uh, principle-based values on which we operate. So we self-fund education in 27 countries in Africa that's impacted about 800,000 students now that we've wow. done over the last um, decade. And so for us, it's all about inclusion and access. Doesn't matter if it's the um, richest part of the world, the poorest part of the world, um, race and ethnicity and religion, etc. Um, so that's our vision and value. But how that actually manifests in our education is that we have incredible world leaders with diversity in our global faculty. So we have um, global leaders from every part of the world, men, women. Um, we have a lot of people engaged in social innovation. Um, so young social innovation leaders like Hugh Evans, um, Princess Kasani Zulu um, from Zambia, who has been an incredible advocate against the fight for um, um, health benefits in the AIDS area. Um, Nobel Peace Prize winners too um, that are in our uh, global faculty. But then also the projects. We deliberately have projects with various charities, mental health organisations, um, therapeutic organisations, um, women's um, shelter and um, advocacy groups, many of which no one would have ever heard of, to ones that everyone's probably heard of, Save the Children, um, uh, programs that have the same theme with the UN that I've mentioned, Make-A-Wish Foundation, um, Red Cross. These are all partners of ours. And students in an MBA uh, will do projects with these types of organisations. And on one hand, you might be thinking, well, why would a senior bank manager, wouldn't they get a bit frustrated by having to do a project with Make-A-Wish Foundation? Absolutely not. The feedback is overwhelmingly and incredibly positive because people in one segment never necessarily got an opportunity to understand how the philanthropic world worked or the government uh, world worked, and it allows them to be better you know, global citizens and understand more broadly segments of the market. So we love that we're bringing that aspect in solving real world challenges um, for our students. And we literally have examples of students and the executives of organizations who are doing presentations and 
people have been in tears because of the impact that these projects are having and how it's going to shape the strategy of some of these organizations for the next two years. And it's really like exciting. I love that. There's a, uh... There's a big movement towards what's being coined profit with purpose. Um, so companies having that social purpose behind them. And, and it's not just something that is, you know, oh, a tick box nice to do. It's actually strategically integral to the development of their company. Why? Well, actually, it does bottom line impact the company because consumers and companies are making buying decisions based on value led purchases. And, and so what you're saying here is, you know, your, your would-be students are looking at, you know, two options for a, for a degree perhaps and thinking, well, actually look at the impact of SIRS making through its foundation in Africa, you know, just a cursory Google of your name, Matt, you'll see you cozied up to sort of all sorts of African leaders. And, uh, um, but, but, but there's a serious part to that, that, you know, making a decision to do a degree through DSIR has a big global impact. Yeah, so I mean, we love that. Um, I'm not sure that students, potential students, would actually make a decision um, to study with us based on our philanthropic work. It would be nice if that was part of the decision making, and maybe it is for a few. But ultimately, I think the decision is: <clears throat> is this the best quality degree that's accredited by Torrens University Australia, or University of East London, or University of Wales Trinity St David, or University of New England, or? University of Mauritius, all our various university partners, um, which is the right degree that's going to have the right skills for that particular candidate. Um, but absolutely, what you're saying, I think, is a big movement, and I think it's a great movement. So, you know, historically, you used to have this really, really big divide between an evil corporation that was just trying to make a profit at any cost, and this kind of do-good charity that was, you know, just wanting to hold hands and sing songs and never knew when their next funding round was going to come in and if they were even going to be operating in the next quarter. So you had this really, really vast kind of space in between. And now you've got incredible organizations. You've got the B team that's been sort of led by Richard Branson and others. You've got hundred percent human at work. You've got these really great initiatives that are about how do you combine this double bottom line? How can you make a profit and do good at the same time? It doesn't have to be mutually exclusive. And I think the organizations that can get that model right, where they're sustainable, they're genuine profitable businesses operating at the same time as doing good, which you know we love the sector we're in because by nature, that is what a university is or any type of education institution. In one sense, they're businesses, unless you're a public school, for example, but in one sense, they're business because any anywhere you charge a fee for a product or service, that is a business. So. Um, universities are business in the sense that they charge fees to students. But there's also a great community good of educating people and providing people with skills and knowledge and career opportunities, which lifts them out of poverty or gives them career opportunities and better you know, lifestyle and opportunities for their families and their children. So that's why I love the sector so much, because it's a great, huge commercial opportunity. University is a massive sector but you're, you know, doing things that are really positive in the community at the same time. Talking of charging fees for services, Matt, you're the CEO of, you know, a global ed tech company. Um, how do you approach, and I ask this question because a lot of my listeners are sales and marketing professionals. How do you approach sales and marketing as an ed tech company in terms of your, your, your 
sort of have a, have a dual role of sort of being B2B because you're partnering with universities, um, but you also have a B2C model ultimately because you're offering a service to consumers that they're purchasing. Um, what does sales and marketing look like at Desir and, and how do you approach getting content and messaging and value out there to, to drive consumers? Yeah, brilliant, brilliant question. So um, we do everything, as you mentioned, from a B2B model to a B2C model. So fundamentally, universities are a business to consumer model. So by and large, and when I say by and large, probably 98% of students around the world are consumer-based uh, marketing initiatives. So you'll have a billboard on a freeway, you'll have um, you know, advertising inside a train or on the outside of a bus, or you'll have Facebook ads or LinkedIn ads, and you're trying to attract an individual that might see an ad for UCLA or an ad for Bari Lund University, and um, think, oh, that looks interesting. I want to get more information. And if it's the right sort of course, they can then inquire, talk to an advisor. You know, that's the process that essentially universities go through. And we do the same thing. So we market publicly, we market to consumers and any individual that thinks, oh, this is a great MBA in luxury brands management, or this is a great bachelor degree in entrepreneurship. They can inquire with us directly. And if it's the right program for them, they'll enroll and we'll take them through that program. But the other side to what we do, which is much less common in the education sector, is the business to business part of our marketing. And so I've mentioned a lot of organizations that we work with already, um, big brand global organizations, but not all global organizations, a lot of small businesses, a lot of government departments. And that's essentially going into organizations and developing a long term talent acquisition, talent retention, talent development strategy. And university qualifications are a fantastic way to do that. Um, organizations are always providing training, but most training is short term. So we've got a half day workshop in this or a four week workshop in that. And that's great because it provides very much in time relevant skills that are needed, but it doesn't drive retention. No one says, oh, I'm going to join this company because I've got these great half day workshops that they do. Um, or I'm going to stay with a company because they offered me two half-day workshops in, in training, or I'm going to put that on my LinkedIn profile. That doesn't happen. That's really just internal skills development. But when you're supporting managers to get an MBA or um, entry-level staff to get a university qualification that they maybe thought was a pipe dream that they'd never be able to achieve, and all of a sudden your employer is helping you achieve that dream, that builds incredible loyalty, motivation, as well as skills development and long-term retention. So that's a really fundamental and important way that we market. Um, and that's probably our most important strategy, even though we do both, as I mentioned, our most important strategy is really working with organizations to help long-term their employees get formal qualifications, recognition for the skills that they have and help them to progress in their careers. I think the solution that you've given there is the sort of utopia of lifelong learning. It's a, a coined term that lots of people throw out there, lifelong learning. We're all going to be learning things, you know, into our 70s, and hopefully we all will be. But the truth is, when you get to a certain point in your life, lifelong learning has to be really impactful, um, particularly in your prime years when you're in your career and you're growing and you're, you're wanting to, to develop lifelong learning that's combined with outcomes aligned to your organization, got to be a winner. 
Yeah, absolutely. And learning happens in many ways. Every time we have a conversation, I'm learning things from just having a conversation with you and your experiences and the journey that, you know, you're on with various exciting things that you're always involved in. So learning can be very informal, having conversations with great people and mentors and, um, you know, colleagues and, and various people. It can be a little bit more formal, like short course, online certifications. There's a lot of things out there. If you just want a very particular skill or you've got an interest, you can jump on Coursera or Udacity and do um, you know, a five hour course in how to use Photoshop um, or do a 12 week program on Roman history. Um, so that's really great that there's so much access to knowledge that really anyone can have on a free level, so much of it is free, some of it is paid for, and then all the way up to formal education. And formal education for us is at the segment of career progression. So if you just want skills, like if someone called me up and said, I just wanna learn X, Y, and Z because it's a technical skill I wanna know, I would say don't enroll into a formal qualification. You don't need it. Here's three different programs, short courses that will teach you those skills really quickly and really cheaply. It won't necessarily progress your career, but that's not what they're after. What's the outcome? And if the outcome is, I just want those skills quickly and easily, there's great ways to do it. If on the other hand, someone wants to go from a manager into the C-suite, the best pathway to get into the C-suite is having that formal recognized um, postgraduate qualification. Or if someone has you know, just got a high school degree, um, a high school qualification and they're thinking about getting a degree, but they're not sure, you know, there's no rules that say someone has to have a degree in order to get career progression. But the reality and the stats are that, you know, the system is against you. If all you have is a high school diploma, the chances of you working up through an organization are much lower than if you have a qualification. So lifelong learning, absolutely huge believer in. Um, I think I always try to look at the, uh, I work backwards. I always try to look at the end goal and then work backwards. Um, so if you know the goal is skills or the goal is I've got a hobby and I'm interested in something or the goal is I wanna get a promotion, that's a really important first distinction. What is it that you're trying to achieve and then you can figure out what is the right program, who is the right provider to achieve that. And then there's other aspects like entry criteria, cost. These are all practical you know, um, issues that people have to deal with. For us, we're all about access. We don't want to have the um, you know, top 100 students in the world that got a 99.99% on their SAT or GMAT or whatever. Um, you know, there's obviously entry criteria to get into formal publicly accredited universities, but fundamentally, we believe that everyone should have the opportunity to get a world-class education. So our vision and mission is around access. We want someone to be able to do an MBA. It doesn't matter if they're in Kigali or if they're in New York, um, if they have very little money or they're very wealthy. And so we have programs that range fully accredited and forgetting the bachelor degrees for a moment, um, at the MBA level, we have fully accredited degrees starting from $7,000 up to around $40,000 in US dollars. Um, so there's a range there, but there's deliberately a big range depending on the style of the programs and the accreditation because we want it to be accessible for everyone. And then we even have scholarships 
for mm-hmm. you know various scholarships for various needs within that. But you know, you're starting to get into a realm of everyone can afford that. When you're talking about college costs of 120, 150, 200 thousand dollars, you're automatically an elitist institution. You're there for very wealthy individuals that can get wealthier. Um, that's fine, but you know it kind of doesn't help 95 percent of the population that's out of that system. And if you're in an education environment where they're they're the only options available to you, you're essentially priced out of the market in you know in many ways and. That is, I think, a real tragedy that no one should miss the opportunity for a world-class education because of affordability. Um, people don't want a degree or they don't want to study. That's fine. That's an individual choice. But if someone is highly motivated and their dream is to get you know, a world-class recognized qualification and they can't do it because of cost, that's really, really unfortunate. That's such an important message, Matt. And the, I guess the, you know, even if you take America, the sort of, you know, coastal elites, whether it's the Northeast or, you know, based out where you are in California, those very high-end elitist universities, elitist only because they're so expensive to get into as the first barrier. Um, It comes back to what we said at the beginning, that education is the gateway to opportunity. It doesn't matter whether you're in New York, New Delhi or anywhere else being able to access that content to grow your mind and ability and outcomes is the, is the, is the answer. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I kind of look at some things and I roll my eyes, you know, not sure uh, if this is the right thing to be saying on a podcast, but you know, we sort of (laughs) say what we feel. Um, But you know, when coronavirus started here, there were some universities that came out with, you know, these incredibly generous like statements saying we're, going to cap our fees and have no fee increase because of, you know, the current situation of the pandemic and the difficulty it's imposing on some people. And I know these universities and I'm like, your fees are $200,000. Not having a fee increase is really not the most amazing thing in the world when you're already charging $200,000 US dollars. It's insane. Um, So for us, you compare that to having a bachelor's degree in the US that you can get for $14,000. And that $14,000 isn't paid up front. Firstly, there's loans available or financing, or even if you paid it off over a few years, you're talking about paying 80 or $100 a week. That's someone who's working at McDonald's part-time or Starbucks. They can afford that. $200,000 is, you know, capping the fee or not, is out of reach of 90% of, you know, the population. I think we can all agree with that. Matt, final question for you. Someone who's at the cutting edge of all innovation around education here, and we've covered some of it, and there's probably loads more we could talk about. 20 years from now, take us there. What does education look like? Has it advanced in in very fast ways? Oh, that's a really, really great question. Such an interesting question, because on one hand, you'd be thinking, of course, like, you know, where are cars going to be in 20 years or where is, you know, aeroplane traffic going to be in, um, uh, transport going to be in 20 years. And you just think about the incredible innovations, medical innovations and those sorts of things. And so we would like to think that, um, you know, university education will be unrecognizable in 20 years. But 
you know, you walk onto a college campus, if me and you went and just sat in a random lecture of a random university, we'd be taken back 20 years because Wow, this is what we were doing 20 years ago. Um, so, and if we got our parents to come in and sit in a lecture, they'd be like, wow, this is what was happening in universities back when we were 20 years old. Um, so, you know, there's a little bit of skepticism about how quickly and how much universities will adapt and will move. But I am very positive as well and very, you know, hopeful that innovations will be adopted primarily around better access um, and better graduate opportunities. So all of what we've been talking about at the end of the day, I mentioned that um, I like to look at the outcome and work backwards. What is the outcome? And the outcome for most students is to get a job. The reality is most students walk out of the university with a piece of paper and still can't get a job. Graduate positions are really, really tough. And so I think the evolution is not so much on will there be virtual reality and artificial intelligence and all this kind of cool sounding stuff that people talk about and universities talk about and futurists talk about. And I'm sure that will be in there, but that's still, you know, not really the end result um, that students or institutions should be looking for. What students want fundamentally is the ability to enter the workforce or to progress in their careers and build a better life for themselves, have higher earning potential and have a better living standard for their family. That's not gonna change in the next 20 years. So my kind of hope and what we're trying to drive is that some of those outcomes over the next decades, um, you know, we'll see better quality, practical outcomes for students beyond having you know, the um, piece of paper itself. Super answer. Matt, this has been so interesting to dive into some of these topics with you. And uh, as I say, we could go on for, for a long time and there's much to discuss. I think what you've outlined, you know, if anyone in any senior education roles, uh, you know, in government or, or otherwise are, are looking at this, this is a manifesto for how education can look in terms of outcomes, delivery mechanism, financial models. Um, there's a lot you've covered here that I think makes a lot of sense. And uh, I think a lot of people will resonate with that. So Matt, it's been amazing to have you on Coffee with Curtis and uh, look forward to seeing you very soon. Perfect, thank you so much. It's been lovely to chat and thanks very much for the opportunity to you know, talk about our thoughts on the topic of education. Love it, thanks so much, Rob. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode. Just before you go, I'd really appreciate it if you hit the subscribe button so you can get weekly updates on the podcast. Hope you enjoyed your coffee.